Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Amnon became frustrated to the point of illness on account of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Now Amnon had a friend named Jonadab, son of Shimea, David's brother. Jonadab was a very shrewd man. He asked Amnon, Why do you, the king's son, look so haggard morning after morning? Won't you tell me? Amnon said to him, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Go to bed and pretend to be ill, Jonadab said. When your father comes to see you, say to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare the food in my sight so that I may watch her and then eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. When the king came to see him, Amnon said to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and make some special bread in my sight so that I may eat from her hand. David sent word to Tamar at the palace. Go to the house of your brother Amnon and prepare some food for him. So Tamar went to the house of her brother Amnon, who was lying down. She took some dough, kneaded it, made the bread in his sight, and baked it. Then she took the pan and served him the bread, but he refused to eat. Send everyone out of here, Amnon said. So everyone left him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food here into my bedroom so that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the bread she had prepared and brought it to her brother Amnon in his bedroom. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, Come to bed with me, my sister. Don't, my brother, she said to him. Don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Please speak to the king. He will not keep me from being married to you. But he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. Amnon said to her, Get up and get out. No, she said to him, Sending me away would be a greater wrong than what you have already done to me. But he refused to listen to her. He called his personal servant and said, Get this woman out of here and bolt the door after her. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. She was wearing a richly ornamented robe, for this was the kind of garment the virgin daughters of the king wore. Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the ornamented robe she was wearing. She put her hand on her head and went away, weeping aloud as she went. Her brother Absalom said to her, Has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? Be quiet now, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. 
And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. When King David heard all this, he was furious. Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. Good evening. It's very good to have you with us tonight. As we turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 13, it's on page 316 in the Pew Bibles. You might also find it helpful to have to hand a, a handout, which you uh, should have got on the way in, and it'll just give you a guide of where we'll go in the next few moments. As we uh, turn back to God's word, let me pray for us tonight. Father, as we come face to face with this hard and gritty passage, we pray for your help. We ask that where we need conviction, you would bring conviction. And where we need comfort, you would bring comfort. And most of all tonight, Father, we pray that you'd help us to see your son more clearly and to cling on to the cross more firmly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before us tonight, we have perhaps the most upsetting story in a a book full of upsetting stories. It is a story of how a man carefully plans and then carries out the rape of his half-sister, leaving her utterly broken and leaving his family utterly torn apart. It is possible to watch as this story unfolds with a kind of morbid fascination. Such is the human heart that we can find such tragedy to be curious, somehow fascinating, in a similar way that passing motorists slow down to watch this scene of a crash. There is a reason why various soap operas, including EastEnders and Coronation Street and Hollyoaks, have all recently run rape storylines. They claim it is to bring such abuse out into the open so we can talk about it, and that, I'm sure, is in part true, but I also fear that they are run because the human heart can find such wickedness entertaining. And so at the risk of stating the obvious, if that is our reaction to 2 Samuel 13, we have totally missed the point of why it is here in the Bible. We should be outraged. We should be left weeping tonight that the selfishness of one person can so totally ruin the life of another. We should be humbled tonight because we will see that the sin at work in this story is alive and well in each of our hearts. But most of all, this chapter should make us cry out for something better. 2 Samuel has been showing us a a scale model, a picture of what life will be like in God's kingdom. But tonight we see the model is desperately flawed. It is broken, and it is broken because of the human heart, which is so utterly sinful. We've seen King David, the good man, the great man. We've seen his flaws these last two weeks, his affair, his, his murder. And now we see the same sin is alive and well in his sons. 2 Samuel 13 leaves us crying out for a better king. He will reign over a better kingdom where there will be no wickedness or weeping. 
Tonight, I want us to look at the three main characters in 2 Samuel 13. Uh, first, Amnon, uh, then Tamar, and finally, David. And as we turn to Amnon, first of all, the, David's oldest son, the, the son next in line to the throne, we see on the handout, first of all, wickedness, the enduring problem of sin. Look at verse one. In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. And straight away, this is a problem. Tamar is Amnon's half-sister, and incest, including with half-sisters, is explicitly forbidden in God's law. If you're taking notes, Leviticus 18, verse 9. And contrary to how so many people think today, what we feel in our hearts does not give us the right to disobey God's laws. And yet, verse 2, Amnon became frustrated to the point of illness on account of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. The word translated a virgin is really a, a reference to Tamar's marriageability. She is now physically a grown woman, not a young girl, and boy, does Amnon notice And what he wants to do to Tamar is very clear. He wants to have sex with her. But she's off limits. Half-sister. One morning over the cornflakes, Amnon's friend and cousin, Jonadab, notices all is not well with the haggard Amnon. And Amnon spills the beans. Verse 4, I am in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. I have no doubt that the feelings Amnon had were powerful. He was haggard, I take it, because he wasn't sleeping at night, tossing and turning, thinking about the gorgeous Tamar. But let's be very clear. What Amnon feels is not love. It is lust. After the rape, we read in verse 15, then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more Then he loved her. And it's as if Amnon simply viewed Tamar as an object there for his gratification. And once he had uh, tasted of what she had to offer, he discards her like an object. He wants her away. He's angry and hates her. For it is lust that Amnon feels. And many people today dress up Lust and call it love. How many husbands have ruined their marriages in the name of love? But all along it's just been lust for a woman, not their wife. Of course, lust is deceptive. It promised Amnon so much, his cravings made him sick with longing. But when he had what he longed for, he discovered that what he had was really nothing at all. In fact, less than nothing. And that is always what sin does. It leaves us with less than we had to start with. It deceives. As Jodinadab finishes off his cornflakes, what he should have said to Amnon is very simple. God forbid. The feelings you have, they will pass. What you're planning is wicked. Man up, get a grip. That would have been the wise response, but notice Jonadab, he is shrewd, but 
but not wise. And he hatches the very plan that Amnon needs to pursue his lust. Just reading through the story, I, I count at least nine different stages to this shrewd plan that enables Amnon to, to get alone with Tamar, sort of bypassing the royal family protocols of decency. Amnon uh, fakes illness. It must have been successful enough for his dad. Um, is summoned to see how um, bad he's doing. He deceives his dad, King David, uh, who then allows the summons to go to Tamar. Uh, the request for bread comes through. Even though there's many servants around, Tamar is, is willing and kind. She comes. Then Amnon refuses to eat the bread. The servants are sent outside, all brilliantly thought through and executed. Until at last, verse 11, Amnon has Tamar alone in his bedroom. At times, the, the human heart can sin impulsively. An opportunity comes and we just take it. At other times, the human heart plots and plans its wickedness. The boyfriend who quite deliberately gets his girlfriend tipsy and then drunk so that when the moment comes, she has less wisdom than before. The husband who makes excuses so that he can stay up late after his wife has gone to bed so that he can watch pornography on his phone knowing he won't be caught. The scheming of Amnon is horrible to watch, but it is so very realistic and accurate to how the human heart works. And so verse 11, he grabbed her and said, Come to bed with me, my sister. There is now one, one chance left that this rape will not happen. The godly plea of, of Tamar, verse 12. Don't, my brother, she said to him, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do such a wicked thing. And of course, Tamar is absolutely right. Amon's plan is wicked. It shouldn't happen. Certainly not in Israel. She goes on, verse 13, what will happen to me? And of course, what will happen to you, Amnon? You'll become like a wicked fool. Think of the consequences, Amnon. But verse 14, he refused to listen to her. And as is so often the case when we are in the clutches of sin, Amnon is deaf to wisdom, deaf to the consequences. He isn't thinking further than the woman in front of him. He doesn't care about the consequences. And so verse 14, since he was stronger than she, he raped her. The sin of David is alive and well in his sons. Remember, David saw a beautiful woman who was off limits to him. He saw and then he schemed and then he took. And so to Amnon, like father, like son. And so we are seeing here in 2 Samuel 13, wickedness, the enduring problem of sin. It's a sobering reminder to parents that so often our besetting sins will reappear in our children. 
it's a sobering reminder to all of us that the sin at work in David and Amnon is alive and well in us. And as I say that, I'm aware that some of us here tonight may well have done the very things Amnon has done. But even if we haven't gone as far as Amnon in our actions, who here can say that we have never lusted or schemed or ignored God's word and turned a deaf ear to wisdom in the moment of sin? And so when we see the enduring problem of sin in the world around us, yes, but also in us, what what hope do we have? 2 Samuel 13 shows us that we have no hope other than in the one descendant of David who shared in David's humanity but not in David's sin. 1,000 years later when Jesus came into the world, he treated every woman he ever met with complete dignity and purity. Jesus never plotted wickedness He never ignored God's word. He didn't turn a deaf ear to wisdom. And instead of using people for his own ends, Jesus came to give his life for people. People like Amnon. People who sin. In just a few moments as we share bread and wine, we remember that the perfect king died in the place of ruined sinners. And uh, that is why in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is able to say to those who have sinned sexually and then who have turned to, to trust in Jesus, he says, that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were cleansed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. And because we have a perfect king who died... One day when our perfect king returns, all wickedness will be done away with. And we will stand before Jesus, not because we deserve it, but because he has died for us. We looked at Amnon, and now more briefly, we look at Tamar. And second, we see weeping, the devastating results of sin. At the start of the story, Tamar is a beautiful, innocent young woman. She is kind. She hears about Amnon's supposed sickness, and she comes to help. She's hardworking. She makes bread for him. And we see her godliness in her response to Tamar. Don't do this, sorry, to Amnon. Don't do this wicked thing. But then after the rape, after the sin, the final picture we have of Tamar is utterly devastating. We See, a woman once desired, verse 17, now discarded. Verse 19, her her beauty has been covered in ashes. Her ornamented robes now in tatters. Her kind and caring spirit turned to tears. And the final words we have concerning Tamar are heartbreaking, verse 20. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. I wish I could tell you a happily ever after story, but from this point onwards, the Bible is silent about the future for Tamar. All that we have, the last words about her, are a picture of desolation, of weeping. 
According to a survey conducted by the police in this country last year, 20% of women and 4% of men over the age of 16 have experienced some kind of sexual abuse. That is, for this country, as of last year. Sexual abuse is not some ancient problem in a far-off country. Our modern society is no different from the world of 2 Samuel 13. Sexual abuse is a desperate, widespread, persistent reality in this broken world. And as I speak to a room this size, I'm very aware that there are bound to be people who have experienced sexual abuse. And so perhaps your question will be the one that Tamar asks in verse 13. What about me? Where can I get rid of my disgrace? Humanly speaking, I I guess the best we can hope for Tamar, and we don't know what happens to her, but we hope perhaps that in the the years to come, some fine young man comes and sweeps her off her feet and and tenderly loves her and cares for her. And in the course of time, they they start a family together and through many years of, of kindness and care, gradually she forgets something of the rawness of what's been done to her. But the Bible has a better answer. Some 300 years later, the prophet Isaiah saw a vision of a broken world put right. In Isaiah 61, we read that God would send a servant to, and I quote, provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the joy of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. And 700 years later, after that vision of the future, Jesus came And at the beginning of his ministry, he picked up Isaiah and he read from that very passage and he said, today in your hearing, those words are fulfilled in me. He has come to turn ashes into beauty, mourning into gladness, despair into praise. But how can Jesus bring about such transformation for those who have been so disgraced and so shamed by sin in this world? I've been reading this book by Mark Mennell. Mark used to be in the staff team here a number of years ago. Uh, The book is called When Darkness Seems My Closest Friend. And um, I haven't read it all, but I've been very helped by what I have read. And in this book, he makes a very helpful point that we're very good at understanding the cross as a place where our guilt for sin is taken away, and that's absolutely true. But he wonders if we are less good at understanding that the cross is also a place where our shame is taken away. Tamar cries out, where could I get rid of my disgrace? And the answer that we have that Tamar did not have is that at the cross, God extends an unconditional offer of acceptance to any who would come to him. Unconditional love unconditional belonging, whoever you are, whatever you have done, whatever has been done to you, you have a home, a welcome, a status at the king's table, a covering for your shame through the cross. It is striking, isn't it, that after Amnon rapes Tamar, he can't get rid of her quick enough. Get away from me. And the only home Tamar has is family, her brother, where she is desolate, wondering who will ever take her in in the future. At the cross, 
Jesus says to those who are ashamed, come into my home, come into my family, and that is a pretty good offer because he is the king of kings. And to be in his household, sharing his inheritance, well, it doesn't get better than that. As we come to share again bread and wine tonight, let us rejoice, yes, that our sins are forgiven, but also our shame has been taken away through the unconditional acceptance of the King of Kings. I know so much more can and needs to be said about abuse, far more than I can say tonight. If you have experienced this in the past, I would urge you to speak to someone, if you haven't, to a friend, someone who came with tonight, a small group leader. Um, I would love to speak to you at the end. If it's not me, to then speak to you further, I'll point you in the right direction of someone who should and can but I would point you to Jesus, the one who takes away our shame. We looked at Amnon and Tamar, and and briefly as we finish, finally, King David, and we see weakness, the failure of human leadership. There is something naive about David in this chapter. Uh, He's the dad, the head of the family, and yet he seems totally oblivious to the haggardness of Amnon and also therefore his agenda. Uh, He seems to be naive speaking to the supposedly sick Amnon, duped by the very things others can see. He puts his stamp of approval on a terrible scheme. But if we could forgive David his naivety, we cannot forgive him his failure to bring justice. Look at verse 21. When King David heard all this, He was furious, and rightly so. And then the furious David does, well, nothing. Verse 23 continues the story beyond our reading tonight. Two years later, two years of nothing being done, Amnon living still amongst the family as if nothing has happened. No one speaks about it, no one does anything about it. A rape has occurred within the family, and the dad doesn't even do anything about it. And of course, into that vacuum, if you could read on through 2 Samuel 13, we discover Absalom, into that vacuum of justice, steps in and he murders Amnon, which in itself was wickedness, but you can almost understand why, given the failure of King David. One of the great fears facing anyone who has experienced sexual abuse is whether anyone will believe their story, and then if they are believed, whether their story will lead to justice. It's often that kind of fear that silences the victims of abuse. And when we see what happens to Tamar under the weak reign of David, well, we can see why. Why does David not act? He hasn't been slow in the past acting when he needs to step in with justice, but here he doesn't do anything. And, and the reason why is because he is now a compromised king. For David himself has sinned sexually. The details are slightly different, but in a very similar way. And now that he has sinned, he can't act to put Amnon's sin to justice. And of course, David is not the only human leader who has failed to exercise justice through personal compromise. And so again, come and rejoice that we have a better king than David. Jesus is not naive. He knows the human heart better than anyone. 
but nor was he ever morally compromised. And because he kept the law perfectly, he also is able to uphold the law perfectly. And for those who persist in wickedness without repentance, one day Jesus will judge. And those who continue to lust and scheme and plot, who continue to disobey and abuse, there will be a day of reckoning under King Jesus. I think 2 Samuel 13 is one of the hardest passages I've ever had to preach on. But as we think about what the people of God will be doing in the new creation, one of the most common things we discover is that we'll be a people who sing songs of praise around the throne of the Lamb who was slain, the King of the universe. And I wonder if 2 Samuel 13 will help us be a people who sing forever. As we are confronted with the wickedness and weeping of a broken world, the Bible will not let us forget it. And then as we realize that in the new creation, it'll be a world put right, a whole world, a world of justice and peace, and a world where there's no weeping. Perhaps then we can begin to realize why we will be a people who sing forever. It's all because of the lamb who was slain, the king of kings. Let me pray. Father, we acknowledge that our hearts have been exposed before you by your word tonight. We've been helped to understand our own hearts, our our wickedness, our sin, and also helped to understand the brokenness of this world. And Father, we cry out tonight again, cries of thankfulness for the Lord Jesus, for his good reign, his his death in our place, his absolute commitment to justice of putting this world to rights. And so Father, please help us now to be ready for that day. Help us now to be a people who praise, who cling to Christ, for that'll be our future forever. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.